Thank you for participating in that way. And, and, you know, when you have needs as a body, this is what it means when it says out on the sign, a biblical community, that we are a family together, that we celebrate together and we mourn together. Uh, don't ever hesitate to use those welcome cards that are in front of you to write your prayer requests down. You know, they're there. You flip it over on the back side. It says a note to the pastor. Write down your prayer requests. We want to pray for you. And, and that's just an example of that. Um, I want to do a detail item here for us as a body. As you might notice, um, as the weeks have gone on since October, um, especially since I started teaching Revelation, um, attendance just keeps ramping up at the church. Um, there's still room in the 9 o'clock service. So if you can um, work it out in your schedule to be part of the 9 o'clock service and open up some seats here in the 11, that would be great. Um, and I want you to do it on this condition. If you invite uh, or if you go to the 9 o'clock service, I'd love it if you would invite somebody to attend with you. And I want to give you a, a brief example of why I encourage you to do that. About four weeks ago, um, my daughter Ashley was at work, and a friend of hers um, started a conversation with her about spiritual things. Um, not necessarily really intending that it would lead the direction that it did, but in the course of the conversation, they started talking about church. And this individual that was having the conversation with her um, had never been to church in his life. So Ashley said to him, well, how about if you come and try out our church at New Hope? So four weeks ago, for the first time ever in his life, he came through the doors of a church. Had never had a Bible before. And so when he heard me say to the congregation, as I do when we start studying God's word, if you don't own a Bible, take a Bible with you. Um, that prompted him to start reading God's word. Last Thursday night, he prayed to receive Christ. Very cool, huh? All right, yeah, absolutely. Those kind of things we want to celebrate as a family here. Now, over the last four weeks, he's been texting Ashley questions about the Bible. She's been relaying the questions to me, and then we respond back with the answers. And so back and forth, this texting conversation, um, using technology to lead somebody into God's kingdom has taken place. You get to be part of that because we're a family of believers together. We get to celebrate what God's doing. That's why we take the time that we do to really deeply teach the word of God so that when someone makes a decision, they understand why they're doing it and what it's all about. Because in his case, as he's reading verse to verse and moving through the Bible, and, and I said, why don't you start with the book of John, but he went to Genesis. <laughs> Uh, start at the beginning, I guess, that's what he figured. Um, it just helps when people take time to explain it. So over a course of period of time, as his family here, you're going to get a chance to meet him. He's a student at MSU, and he wants to be discipled. He wants to grow in the Word of God, and, and that's what we're going to do. We're going to take time to help people grow in the knowledge and the nurture and the admonition of God's Word. So as we uh, think about that, let's take a minute and pray as we step into studying God's word now, asking that his spirit would be very active in this room. Would you do that with me? Father, we're going to open up your word now, and we're going to look at things that are just a mystery to much of humanity. Very few people have bothered to look at the book of, of, of Revelation over the course of time since it was written. And yet we believe that you want us to know what you had to say about things present and things to come. Otherwise, you wouldn't have had it written. 
So we ask, Father, that you would give us what the Bible calls eyes to see and ears to hear. And I'll ask for one further, further, Father, that you would give us a heart to understand that as we look at these things, that you would apply these truths to our heart, not only to strengthen those who walk with you, but to bring the knowledge of salvation to those who are not there yet. Father, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, your uh, notes, if you picked them up this morning at the door when you came in, are, uh, the answers to it this week will not be on the screen, um, unfortunately, because your pastor forgot to put them in the PowerPoint, but they're still here on this paper, and so I'm going to lay it down here in the front, and you can pick it up after the service. You can also, if you go to the website, download the form, the form on the, the New Hope website. The, the form is posted on there as a PDF. So a question for you. Anyone here happen to know what the number one best-selling book of all time in all of humanity is? Bible. Bible, that's right. Six and a half billion copies that we know of since Gutenberg invented the printing press. First book he ever printed, the Bible. Six and a half billion known copies. Anybody happen to know what number two is? Ha, trivia. We could play Jeopardy. Well, you all thrown out answers. Chairman Mao's The Little Red Book. Huh. Here's an interesting detail. Of the four and a half billion copies of Chairman Mao's The Little Red Books, thoughts from a dictator, oh, yeah, four billion still sit on the shelves in the warehouses. Ooh, there was a forced printing, wasn't it? It wasn't because there was a demand in society. The, the 500,000, the half billion that were passed out were given to school children as required reading. Anybody happen to know what number 10 is? All-time best-selling book in the history of the world. A little book called What Would Jesus Do, written in 1896. And you thought the bracelet was a new idea, didn't you? <laughs> what Would Jesus Do, written by a pastor in 1896 about solutions to moral dilemmas. The bracelet came quite a bit later. Number 10 on the list. However, those two last books that I just mentioned probably should be bumped off the list because of the number two book. That's not Chairman Mao's. Did you know that God wrote another book besides the Bible? One that you have never read one that you're going to learn about this morning. As a matter of fact, there's only one issue of the book that's ever been published, and God wrote it himself. It's called the book of life. And as we look at Revelation chapter 3 this morning, you're going to understand what the book of life is all about and the ramifications for it. As a matter of fact, the young man who prayed to receive Christ on Thursday night has his name written in the book of life, just like yours, if you name the name of Christ. Let's look at the text this morning. I'm going to ask you to open up to Revelation chapter 3, if you have your Bibles with you. If you don't, there's Bibles in the pew racks in front of you, and those are there for you to take with you if you don't own a Bible. We want you to have God's Word in your hands, so don't hesitate to take those out. Revelation chapter 3. I would say to you this morning, Congratulations, you are seven weeks 
into studying the hardest book in the book of the Bible, in the Bible. Revelation is a book that's very rarely opened by people, and yet you're seven weeks into it. Chapter one, we found Jesus' description of himself as John saw him when he was standing on the island of Patmos. The last few weeks, the last five, we've looked at Jesus' letters to the churches. And we only have a couple letters left to go to the churches before we step into Revelation chapter four, which is the unveiling of future things, the things that will take place on earth, and we get the privilege of looking into it. But first, Jesus has all these things to say to his church because he wants his church at tip-top shape, premium performance position, so that we can share the message of the book of Revelation to a world who's watching and saying, what's going on? Something is wrong here. And we've got the answer. We can tell what's going on if we're students of the word. Very important that we pay attention to Revelation chapter three this morning because this particular writing is to a dead church. You ever been in a dead church before? By whatever definition you call a dead church? I was invited to speak at a church some years ago in Detroit. This particular church is on uh, Woodward Avenue, downtown Detroit, right across the street from the Fox Theater. Matter of fact, when I was standing in the church, I could look out the window and see the lights of the Fox Theater. I was surprised when I pulled up in the parking lot that there was a 10-foot high fence all the way around the building and the parking lot with an armed guard at the gate who opened the gate, allowed me to pull in, and then closed the gate behind me after I pulled in. I kind of wondered what in the world goes on inside this place or who are they trying to keep out. I've never seen a church with armed guards with a fence around it. As I pulled in, I saw lined up in the parking lot BMWs, Cadillac, Lexus, very nice cars. As I went inside, I realized why. Most everyone in there was dressed to kill. They were the movers and shakers of the greater Detroit area. These were people who had driven in from out in the suburbs. At one time, St. John's Episcopal Church was the church to be at, back in the heyday of Detroit. When I arrived, I saw a church that was built to seat 800 people. There were 50 people in the building, and most of them just scattered around. They went through their liturgy, the things that they typically do in this particular church, and then I got up to speak. I don't think they'd ever encountered someone like me before. I could see the shock in their eyes as I began to read the word of God. It was a surprise to them. As I was teaching, I could look out the window and see the traffic streaming up and down Woodward Avenue. People who were totally oblivious to what was taking place in that church because the life of the church was gone. It had no impact on society. They didn't care what was going on inside and apparently the people inside really kind of at some point gave up caring what was going on outside. They were just there to go through the motions. When I think of the church at Sardis, I think of this church over in Detroit. That's the image that pops in my mind. What do we know about Sardis before we read verse one here in chapter three? Archaeologically, we've learned a lot about this particular city. I wanna show you some images up on the screen that'll help you to appreciate how prosperous these people were. They actually had a MAC, a Michigan Athletic Club, 
Look at this first image up on the screen. You're gonna be impressed. Look at this gymnasium. This is a place behind it where there was a very large swimming pool. This was the workout part where they had weights. Individuals could go and sit in the sauna. This was a prosperous community. Look at this next image. This is a place where many of the people who lived in Sardis went to worship. This was a temple that was built to the goddess Diana. In scripture, she's called Artemis. You also find the same type of a temple was built in Ephesus. This is a very large temple. As a matter of fact, their detail work was so significant that when their detail work, their architecture took place, people came to study it. Because you note, when you look at the detail work, you see that these are people who were really appreciating the finer things of life. There's scroll work. There's capitals on the top of the pillars. This is 2,000 years ago. We're not talking about a cave-dwelling people. We're talking about a prosperous city-dwelling people. I want you to see this next image and allow this one to register in your mind because it's important to where we're going with the teaching today. What you're looking at is the inside of a Jewish synagogue. There was a very large Jewish gathering of people in Sardis. And this synagogue influenced society there to some degree. So what you have is a prosperous people who've got enough time on their hands to go to a gymnasium. And a people who are a little bit distracted in the way that they're supposed to worship, so they go off to this temple, Diana. And they got in their midst a Jewish synagogue. We also learn from archaeology that they were very prosperous because there happened to be a river outside their city where gold was harvested. As a matter of fact, in the last couple hundred years, archaeologists have found crucibles for harvesting gold, for refining gold up and down the river banks. These people took in the wealth of the land and they used it to their advantage. They were a prosperous people. They were also in a position where they built their city 1,500 feet above the valley floor. They were on the cliff of a rock, which made them kind of impregnable to attacks on the city. Three walls could not be approached from the west, from the north, and from the east. The only way to attack the city was from the south. So these are people who are wealthy, they've got time on their hands, and they become a little bit complacent because they can't be taken. Militarily, they've got a stronghold. This is what one of their own contemporaries, who was a historian at this time, said about them. This man's name was Herodotus. Here's what he had to say about the people that lived in the city. The tender-footed Lydians, that was the name of the people, who can only play the cithara, strike the guitar, and sell by retail. Allow that to sink in. They're selling goods. They sit around playing musical instruments. Their feet are so soft because they never have to go out and do a day's work. This is a man who doesn't think very much of them. Jesus has the same thing almost to say to the church that's in Sardis. He says, you have a reputation for being alive, but there's nothing going on inside. Let's look at Revelation chapter 3 and verse 1. To the angel of the church in Sardis, write, He who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this, I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. 
Apparently, their contemporaries thought they were prosperous people. They were a successful church. But Jesus said, I know you. I see what's going on inside. You have a name for being alive, but you're really dead inside. There's nothing going on there. Who says this? He who has the seven spirits of God. Now, what's that? In Revelation chapter 1, you remember in that first week in the division that John saw Jesus, it said that Jesus was the one who had the seven spirits and he held in his hand the seven stars. What is the seven spirits of God? You might remember a teaching that I did last year in which we looked at the fullness of the Holy Spirit. And Isaiah prophesied hundreds of years before that when Jesus arrived on earth, he would be full of the Spirit of God. Look at this prophecy with me up on the screen, Isaiah 11.2. This was a prediction of what Jesus would look like. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and strength, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. If you count those up, there's seven of those there. Seven is always the picture of fullness in Scripture. So what we have is Jesus full of the Holy Spirit, the power of God resting upon him, speaking to a church that has no life in it, devoid of the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit brings life to the church. So Jesus, as the one who's got power of the seven spirits, says to the church, you're dead. You got nothing. And he goes on to tell them that they have something to do to fix their situation. Now here's a question for us. The Spirit must have been alive in that church at one time. A church wouldn't start up if it didn't have the power of the Holy Spirit on it. What happened? Why did the life of the church dissipate? Where did it go? Let alone break it down from the church. What happens in the life of an individual when it feels like that person has wandered away from God? They're not following him anymore. Jesus knows exactly what's going on, and this is what he says. I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you're dead. They claim to be healthy. They claim to be successful. But he says, no, that's not the case. How does a church die? I'll tell you what I believe to be the case in Sardis. I know to be the case at the church that I spoke at in Detroit, and many times many, thousands of churches across the world. An absence of teaching the word of God. And it happens over a long period of time where what's in here becomes offensive to people over a period of time. So man begins to adapt. Here's how I know this, and I'm gonna pull it out for you in the next verse. Notice when you read those first few verses, they're in the midst of a powerful Jewish synagogue, yet there's no persecution taking place. The Nicolaitans aren't coming against them. There's no Jezebel in their midst. There's no one persecuting them, yet they're of no threat whatsoever. This particular church would have been better off to have some kind of a struggle come against them. They would have been better off to endure some kind of a hardship because they're so soft that they've got this reputation for being alive, but yet they're dead. No friction usually means no movement. 
There's no friction here, so they're not making any forward motion. Think about this. They're in the midst of enemy territory. What did Jesus say to the other churches? Satan is in your midst. Satan has set up a throne. There's a synagogue of Satan. To this church, he didn't say that at all. He just says, you're dead. They're in the midst of enemy territory, and they're not perceived as any kind of a threat whatsoever. Was their light already extinguished? Did Jesus already reach and turn off the switch like we talked about in Revelation chapter one? Was it already gone? You find a church here that reminds me of a museum. It's full of stuffed animals, they look alive. There's nothing going on inside. Totally empty. I've got some danger signs that I've identified of a church that's dying. It can also relate to an individual who's dying inside spiritually. Let me list those off for you, and I think they'll appear up on the screen. Here's some danger signs. When it's content to rest on its past rather than looking ahead for what God has called them to. There's another one. When it focuses on curing social troubles rather than changing people's hearts through the teaching, the truth of the Bible. Third one. When it's more concerned with material things than spiritual things. Fourth when it's more concerned with what men think than what God directs. Last, when it loses its conviction that every word of the Bible is the word of God himself. I can come up with a couple more. When there's no children in the church, when there's infighting that takes place, when there's resistance to change, all those things crush the life out of a church. And what we see here in Sardis, a church going through a life cycle. Apparently, there are ebbs and flows. You can't point to too many churches that were strong 100 years ago that are still strong today. They go through life cycles. But here's the interesting thing. Jesus says this church can be revived. They can be resuscitated. You can perform CPR in this church. Look what he says in verse 2. Wake up! and strengthen the things that remain, which were about to die, for I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. Any of you as teenagers ever have a really hard time waking up for school? I'm the first to say, get your hand up there if you're agreeing with me, okay? I see teenagers doing, okay, adults, any adults as teenagers have a hard time, okay? My mother developed a method for waking Mark up in the morning. (laughs) You want to listen? (laughs) My mom would take a glass of water every night and put it in the refrigerator to chill it. And it was chilled very, very nicely. And when she would come into my room, the first thing she would say is, Mark, wake up. It's time for school. She knew the first one would never work. By the second one, she'd begin the drip of the water on my head. By the third one, she knew that I wasn't going to wake up, and she would say, Mark, wake up. You have to get up for school. My mom was a morning person. It wasn't hard for her to get up. It was easy, so it just clicked with her. I, however, was not at that time. She corrupted me, and now I am. But by the third warning, the glass of water was dumped out on me. Wake up! Okay, you got it? What this scripture is saying here specifically is not just be watchful, not just be aware, but constantly on the alert. In the Greek, it's given as a staccato. Anybody here taking piano lessons? You know what staccato is, short, abrupt. 
The same thing if you're an art major, you understand what staccato is. Very abrupt and precise. In Greek, the way this is mentioned here, wake up is a slap in the face. Look at the Greek word for wake up, Gregorio. Look at the definition, to keep awake, watch, literal or figurative, wake, be vigilant, and watchful. It's where we get the word Gregorius from. Somebody who's Gregorius is alive and full of life. The reverse is true of this particular church. They're asleep. I say this, what I'm about to say for those of us who attend New Hope, but there's many people who listen to our church on on podcasts every week and they live in other states. I just met somebody from West Virginia two weeks ago that drove up just to see what I look like. Interesting. But there's churches that don't exist in their area where individuals want to attend or churches that they want to be part of so individuals listen to podcasts. What I'm about to say, I say for our body, but I say for those who listen on the podcast as well. If you're in a region and you're part of an area where a church is dead, you have a responsibility to help wake up that church, to speak into the issues that are going on. If there's sin, confront the sin. Speak against it. Do the work that Christ calls us to because this is what he says next. Strengthen the things that remain. In other words, there's some things going on there that are worth saving. Work for it. Fight for it. Take those things that are good and Here's what it implies, actually. It was what it's saying is stopping forward motion. They were moving ahead, and they stopped for some reason. Can you imagine if tonight Derek came to Lori and I and said, you know, that Australia thing I was going to do, operative word being was, I think I'm not going to do that. After I strangle him, I would say, what in the world is going on? You had forward motion. God was showing you what to do. That's what Jesus is speaking to them about. You've got forward motion here, but for some reason, you've pulled back on the reins. So he says to them, I've not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. What that's saying specifically is, he's speaking to the quality of the work. It doesn't measure up. It doesn't meet Jesus' standards. It's low performance. Here's what I believe their primary shortcoming is. Speculation, I told you I would tell you when I'm speculating. I'm speculating. I believe their primary shortfall is they stopped telling other people about the good news of Jesus Christ. And they began to shrink. They forgot what they had. I'm gonna back that up. I'm gonna show you why I think that's what's going on in this church. Verse three, so remember what you have received and heard and keep it and repent. Therefore, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come to you. If you happen to have a copy of the scriptures in front of you and it says NIV or NASB, NASB is the version that we have in the pew racks, Very rarely will you find words that are inaccurate in the NASB, but this is a word that's inaccurate. I want to give you the correct word. It shouldn't say what you have received, but how you have received. Let's go back to the word remember, and I'll clarify this for you. Here's the word remember, the definition for it in Greek. Nemonuo. You can break it down that way to pronounce it yourself. Nemonuo. And this is what it means to exercise the memory, recollect, rehearse, make mention, 
Be mindful. What do you do when you rehearse? You get it down. It's precise. You know how to say it over and over and over again. Jesus is saying to this group of believers, you came to the knowledge of faith in Jesus Christ, King of kings and Lord of lords, and you forgot. Remember, nemo new o. Be mindful. Think about your heritage and your faith. Did you grow up in the church? Did you come to faith in Christ in the last week? Think about the process, about how it happened, because what does that do for you? It takes you to a new place of remembering, wow, this was something that at one time was powerful in my life. I had passion at one time. I couldn't wait to tell people. This young man that came to faith in Christ last week, the first thing he did was text my daughter saying, guess what I just did? You understand? There's passion behind that. I'm so excited, I can't wait to tell people. So that brings the power of the Spirit back. So this is Jesus, the one who pulls the power of the Spirit. The fullness of the Spirit surrounds him, says, I see you, and I know you're really dead inside. Remember the passion that you originally had. That will bring you back. So how do you lay hold of this Holy Spirit that Scripture is talking about? How do you bring the power of the Spirit back into a church, let alone back into an individual's life? It's very simple. One way. This is what he says. Repent and obey. Keep it, meaning obey. We learned that in the first week when we studied Revelation. When it says keep it, it means obey and repent. Repent by restoring the authority of the gospel over your life. These people needed to do five things that I see, and I want to remind you of what they are before we move into this future thing about the book of life. Here are the five things that they needed to do. They needed to wake up, cannot just go on with the flow. they got to reverse the trend. Number two, they needed to strengthen the things that remain. Number three, they needed to remember what they had received and heard. Go back. What did Paul say to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6.20? Timothy, guard the things that have been entrusted to you. Hold tight. Fight for them, Timothy. Because why? We're human. They tend to fade out of our mind. Number four, they needed to keep or obey the truths of Scripture. And number five, they needed to repent, confess, and turn away from their sins. If you do not. Sounds like a warning, doesn't it? If you don't do this, what did he say? There's going to be severe consequences I'm going to come as a thief. And this is not referring to the second coming of Jesus when you see him depicted as a thief in the night. This is referring to Jesus coming in justice, coming with authority, coming with a special judgment against them. Quick illustration. Last week when I was teaching in the second service, afterwards I was approached by a man that was here who is a pastor that lives over in the Detroit area. He told me that he has a friend who's pastoring a church in Kansas. This pastor has not been at this church very long. He was invited in to grow the church, okay? He began teaching his first Sunday there out of the book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians is a book that's very much dedicated to personal lifestyle behavior about sin. So he taught out of 1 Corinthians. The following week, his elders that had just hired him came to him and said, um, that book that you taught out of, 
we have people who were offended by that teaching. We don't want you to teach out of 1 Corinthians anymore in this church, or we will lose people. Oh, so his response was, you don't want me to teach out of 1 Corinthians? What would you like me to teach? Why don't you try something like Romans or Acts? Romans, really? Okay, next week, he began teaching out of the book of Romans. Same thing. They came to him and said, that book, we don't want you to teach out of that. We're going to lose people. This went on for months. His last Sunday there, there were two people in the church, his wife and himself. Everyone else had left because he was teaching the authority of God's word. I say if a church is going to die, let them die that kind of a death, teaching the word of God because he recognized exactly what was going on. He understood that they needed to come under conviction. So Jesus realized that there's a remnant within this church that's worth reviving. Look what he says in verse four. But you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. God has a remnant even in a dead church. Very interesting. They will walk with me in white, though. What is this speaking of? Whenever you see white clothing in Scripture, it always symbolizes salvation. It means that you've been redeemed or regenerated when you see someone in white clothing. Specifically, there's some examples that come out of archaeology about this. I'm going to point you to in just a minute. But put this in terms of the text of the Bible. Think about Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve are in the Garden of Eden. They're walking with God, Scripture says. In the cool of the day, they walked with God through the garden. What happened when they failed, when they sinned? They no longer walked with God. The ability to walk with him forever taken away until the white robes are restored and they will walk with me, Jesus is saying. Once again, man will have the privilege of walking with God. And not just walking with him, but he says walking in white. This white that's symbolized here is a glittering, brilliant white. We're not just talking about the white that comes out of your washing machine. This is whiter than what tide can get you. This is luminous white, like Jesus at resurrection. As a matter of fact, this is what Jesus said in Matthew 13, 43. Then, speaking of the end times, then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. How bright is the sun? If you've been out in Colorado on a blue sky day, maybe when the snow is really white and you look at the sun, you can barely keep your eyes open. That's the same imagery that's used here. You will not only be clothed in white, you will be so brilliant that it almost hurts the eyes. But yet we'll be looking with heavenly eyes. Now here's the archaeology part of this. In the ancient world, white garments were always worn on two occasions. To celebrate weddings, people for festive occasions would put on white garments. And the other one was when a military team was successful in battle, the, the particular group of men who carried out the battle successfully were given white garments. So we see this word picture playing out here. 
that not only will we be joined with Christ and walking alongside him in brilliant white, but it's representative of the fact that there's been a victory that's taken place. See the imagery that Jesus is bringing out here in this book? It's powerful for us. And he says this lastly, before we get into this thing about the book, they are worthy. Here's a reminder for every one of us. The worthiness is not of ourselves. The worthiness is in Jesus Christ alone. He's the one that made us worthy. So he can say, they are worthy. And like you, I myself many times feel, God, I just don't feel very worthy today. But he says, you are worthy. That's the way he sees you. No matter what, you're mine. They are worthy. We're worthy. Not because we've lived good moral lives, but because we've been washed in the blood of the Lamb. That's what Scripture says. Verse 5. He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments. Excuse me. He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life, and I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. It's a short little letter, isn't it? Only six verses long, but this last two verses are so powerful, especially verse five. Because everybody, when they read this, Hey, wait, he who overcomes will be clothed in white and I will not erase his name from the book. Does that mean somebody's name can be erased from the book of life? You all thinking that? That's the first thing that pops in your mind. What's going on here? That must mean there are people who can be. Now think about this argument that took place with Moses and God when we read that first verse in Exodus 32. Moses is arguing saying, God, I want them. I want to bring them back. There's a chance. And God says, no, Moses, I will blot their names out of my book. This particular book, the book of life. This second promise bothers many people because it speaks to, can I lose my salvation? That word, not, next to erase, should be the word never. And here's why. The word never that's used there is the strongest negative that's ever used in the Greek language. It's a double negative. Here's the way it should actually read. I will never ever under any circumstances blot out your name from the book of life. See what individuals have done over a period of time is they've taken something that's a promise and turned it into a threat. What Jesus is saying is there's nothing you can do to have your name removed from the book of life if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, if you're the one in the white garment, if you're the true believer, I will never, ever blot your name out of the book of life. It means eternal security. Can I remind you again what Romans 8 says? Let me read this for you. Romans 8, 39. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us 
from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Redeemed for all time. So what's the deal with this book of life when scripture talks about people being blotted out of the book? What's going on there? This is an important point to remember, especially as we move through the book of Revelation. Every single person who is not just born, every single person who is conceived is written down in the book of life. Sinner, ungodly, saved, redeemed, they're all there until death. And at death, if someone has not confessed Jesus Christ, that's when their name is blotted out of the book of life because they're no longer living. They're no longer in the book of life because they're dead. Only the redeemed are the living. Those are the ones that are still there. Jesus said of himself in Luke 10, he's talking to the disciples. He said, you have a reason to rejoice. Look at it up on the screen, Luke 10, 20. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. If it wasn't true, Jesus would not have said it. So you can take that to the bank. What happens to those whose names are blotted out of the book of life? It says specifically in Revelation chapter 20, and that's where we're gonna end it today. Let me take you fast forward to Revelation chapter 20 and verse 12, and then I'm gonna show you one other verse. This is what John saw. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne and the books. What book? The judgment books were opened. And another book was opened, the book of life, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books, meaning the judgment books, the deeds, according to their deeds, Revelation 20, 12. So what happened to these people? Revelation 20, 15. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. That should be a very somber moment for all of us. Anyone who is not recorded in the book of life is thrown into the lake of fire. And if you believe the word of God and you take it literally, you have to say, thank you God that you redeemed me and please redeem my brother. Does it make you passionate when you hear the word taught? Now he ends it up in one particular statement. He says he's going to do something fabulous for all of us. Look at this last thing that he said he would do. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. The word is homologeo, and this is what it means. It's used in a courtroom scene. It's when a witness stands up and says, homologeo, I confess, this person belongs to me, that man belongs to me, that woman belongs to me, and he names us by name, I confess, and I want the universe to know, that's my child. Homologeo, I will confess his name. And he doesn't just say it out loud. He says it before the God of the universe. Praise the Lord.
That's what we have to look forward to. The King of Kings saying your name. Ernie, I know you're here someplace. He's going to say your name. This is Ernie from last Thursday. So what's our promises? Here's what he says. The overcomers will be clothed in white garments. The overcomers know Christ will not erase our names from the book of life. And the overcomers know this, that Christ will homolageo our names before the Father. 